My name's Sarah Billups, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? My guest today is Sarah Billups, the author of Orphaned Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find Their Way Home. I love my conversation with her, partly because Sarah and I have very different backgrounds. She grew up in a Christian home and was fully baptized in the Christian subculture. I didn't become a Christian until I was in college and was completely unaware there was even such a thing as the Christian subculture. I'm sure you're aware that there are a number of people who have grown up in church and have either left it or considering leaving it. Sarah has a heart for those kind of people, partly because that's her experience. In her 20s, she became disillusioned with the church, especially how it was affected by consumerism and how it participated in the culture war. While Sarah's faith was shaken, it didn't fail. In her book, she paints a different vision of what it means to follow Jesus. I think you'll enjoy hearing from her. Sarah Billups, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thanks, Keith. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to a conversation with you about why people are leaving the church and, at least in your opinion, what the church needs to do to retain them or maybe even get some who've left to return. And your book, Orphaned Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find Their Way Home, is an exploration of kind of that topic, at least from your personal story and personal perspective. And I just want to start with the title, Orphan Believers, the first part of it. Who's been orphaned? Like who orphaned the believers? Because when I hear orphan, I hear, well, you know, maybe a parent has left a child, but who has left the Christians in your opinion? When I use the term orphans believer, I'm really just thinking of any Christian looking around the American church and wondering where Jesus is. You know, and there could be a kind of cultural orphaning. You know, I live in Seattle. If you are moving in a sort of more progressive space or a space where it's less common to identify as a Christian, it can be really exhausting to explain what that means, or you're a Christian, but not that kind, you know, so there's a certain cultural dynamic, or, you know, I grew up in Indiana in in the Bible Belt, Rust Belt slash Bible Belt, where cultural Christianity was quite common, but maybe it was harder to find mystery or nuance or aesthetic. And so there could be a kind of cultural feeling of being orphaned for a Christian, or it might be spiritual, those of us that can't square our reading of the gospel with what we're seeing right now in a lot of congregations in, in America. Indiana to Seattle is quite a change. I mean, we could probably spend 
a lot of time just talking about the differences in churches and Christian perspectives and the maybe the pressures that a Christian faces in both places. And maybe we'll get to that as we continue to have the conversation. But right now, I want to talk about the second half of the title of your book, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find the Way Home. And it seems like you have a heart for people who have grown frustrated or alienated from the church. That's what I picked up when I was reading your book. Maybe people who've been turned off by the politics or angry Christians. Like you said a second ago, part of your heart is to say, well, there's a different way to follow Christ. You know, not all Christians look the same. Where did you get a heart for people who feel alienated or orphaned in your language? Did you have a season where you walked away from Christianity? Where did you get your heart for people like that? I moved to Seattle in the early 2000s with my husband and a group of friends. We were really interested in starting an intentional community. This was the era when Tim Keller was talking about returning to the city and a lot of people were going to kind of coastal places. It's when Shane Claiborne was talking about new monasticism. So it was the missional church era, and we were really riding that wave with a lot of optimism and energy of 20-somethings wanting to go to the city and change things. But looking back really quickly, the city was a lot bigger and more complicated than we imagined. And so, you know, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers in their This Cultural Moment podcast from a few years ago talk about this kind of assimilation where we thought we were coming to assimilate Seattle. And really, it pretty quickly assimilated us. Now, what we didn't understand at the time, Keith, is that this is also the same era in Seattle when Mars Hill is really growing and rising. And so there was a lot of kind of palpable hostility in Seattle media and in the actual experience of what it was like to identify as a Christian here. There was kind of this other dynamic that I didn't figure out until a long time after. But, you know, we got here, we were optimistic, everything fell apart pretty quickly. A lot of People in my life started to identify as spiritual, but not religious, which I think looking back was kind of like the term for deconstruction, you know, in the early 2000s. And so I just began to find myself alienated, confused, walked through a time where I was working in kind of cool Seattle jobs and publishing or writing for alt weeklies, whatever. And I didn't talk about my faith at all. So I really quickly truncated that part of my life from what I did on Sundays, which was show up at the same church we've been going to for almost 20 years. And so really quickly, I had this sense that there was almost like a bag I was carrying over my shoulder. And it got to the point where there was almost like a bag filled with rocks. Like I was so (laughs) tired of managing two identities, you know? And so really that was a 10, 12 year process of kind of wandering through a spiritual desert, wondering what happens when you jump and you know, you kind of fall. And what happens when you think that God will meet you and everything falls apart? And so for me, that's kind of what happened here that began to make me realize if I'm going to be serious about my faith, if I care about the church, if this isn't just for show, I need to see what I can do about it. I take it you never actually went through a season where you didn't think of yourself as a Christian, didn't call yourself as a Christian, but it was more just dual identities that you had a Christian life that was very separate or compartmentalized from your public life. Yep. If I was like a candle, the bushel would have almost snuffed the candle. (laughs) When I would read about being lukewarm, it would just tug at something in me in those years because I was just holding on out of fear and 
because I didn't know where else to go or what else to do. But there was not a time where I wouldn't have called myself a Christian. I just might not have told you that if I met you. And the people you went out to start this community with or the people you met there in Seattle once you arrived, did they end up leaving the faith? I don't mean all of them, but did a significant number of them walk away and no longer identify as Christians? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that folks are in different places. Some folks have moved towards Catholicism or more liturgical practices. I now am in part of the Anglican Church of North America. So in a way, I've done that too. Some folks have left Christianity altogether. Others probably would still say spiritual, but not religious. But certainly that kind of young, optimistic, evangelical kind of unity that we had has very much dissipated in that 20 years since. I think that helps me as I read the book a couple of times. It helps me understand your heart for why you wanted to write this book, because it's a sense in which these are people you care about, you know. And if you were to go and talk to people that you have had these relationships with and ask them, you know, why did you pull away? How do you think they would frame it? Like, what was it in them that caused them to withdraw from Christianity, at least the expression that they originally held when you knew them? I think a couple things would be common themes in that answer. The first is a lot of us were raised in families. You know, we came up in the 80s and 90s. We were raised, again, in families that taught us to love Jesus and modeled Christianity, but it was also complicated. I mean, I wanted to explore in Orphaned Believers how my experience coming up in the 80s and 90s impacted not just my own experience, but also the church. But really, I think a lot of us began to poke holes at some of the things we were taught about culture wars politics, how to vote, end times culture. I think we just began to look back and not see how that squared with a living kind of adult independent faith that we were trying to find in our 20s, you know? So I think part of it is looking back and not understanding some of that tradition and the culture around it. And I'd say they would also say that they've seen, I would imagine, a fair amount of inconsistency, celebrity, kind of the big business of church, the consumerism of church, maybe seen people being othered or just not seeing how there's a real true modeling of love in the places where they thought they would find it. That's what I would imagine they would say. I, on the other hand, saw that too, but I stayed. Maybe because I joke that that my husband and I are stupidly faithful, but we just decided to press on and found something on the other side of it. Well, I think it was Russell Moore who said that what turned off a lot of non-Christians is that they weren't even sure that the Christians believed what they said they believed. Yeah, that's right. Like the hypocrisy and inconsistency. And it, of course, doesn't just affect people who aren't a part of the Christian faith, even those who are inside the church and who consider themselves followers of Jesus. When you look around and see people who call themselves Christians and maybe even have leadership positions, but they are not acting consistent with the faith, at least the way you understand it. We're all a little bit dangerous there because we're all a little bit more judgmental than we'd like to be and extend grace to ourselves quicker than we extend grace to others. But nonetheless, if you look around and see people who aren't following Christ but claiming the name Christian, it causes you to just doubt the whole thing and wonder if any of it's true. In the book, you unpack end times, culture wars, and consumerism as kind of areas that you address. And I don't know if we can get to all those, but let me say this. One thing that we don't share in common is that I didn't become a Christian when I was in college. And so I wasn't exposed to the Christian subculture, didn't grow up in a Christian home. And you were, and that's a big part of your story. And so I just have questions about that. I think it's one of the things I appreciate about your book is I just got to read your experiences and it helps me understand where other people are coming from who maybe share some of your 
background in history. But in the end times thing, you have this kind of dialogue with your dad. And I just want to say it might be the highlight of the book is your relationship with your dad. It really humanizes, it personalizes the story. But he became a Christian a little bit later in life, and he has this end times obsession. Can you just talk a little bit about your relationship with your dad, what he believed, how that influenced you, when you moved away from some of those beliefs? Just kind of dive into that part with me. Yeah, that's right. My dad is Jewish. He took one of those 23andMe tests and was so pumped to see that he's 99.9% Ashkenazi, which is more than Larry David. It was like one of the best moments of his life. He loves his Jewish identity. He grew up in a reformed Jewish home in Indiana, got married to my mom when he was in his late teens for probably a lot of wrong reasons. They separated. He was pretty desperate. This is the mid-70s. Started going to a Bible study on the book of Daniel at a friend's apartment in Fort Wayne, Indiana. After a few months, talks powerfully about this real radical conversion where one night he was just sitting on the floor at the apartment and felt the Holy Spirit come on him. And he talks about it in a cinematic way, right? But he said he leapt over the couch and ran to the parking lot and fell on his face and became a Christian in that moment. My mom saw him a few months later and didn't recognize him at first. She literally said that his countenance, something had changed about his face and so beautiful. He had a powerful conversion. My parents got remarried and had me. But the truth is that while my dad raised me to understand the love of Jesus and we went to church and he did his best to model that, I also grew up in a house that was very obsessed with premillennial dispensationalism. So next to the Bible in our house was Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth, which was a crazy bestseller, which sold more copies than The Joy of Sex, which was like number one on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there was an Orson Welles narrated TV special that millions of people saw in the late 70s or early 80s. And so End Times was ubiquitous. It was culturally catching on, thinking about Russia and the Red Scare when I was a kid. There was just this kind of apocalyptic language. Reagan would talk about the apocalypse and a couple of speeches. And so there was a real kind of fire that caught on with the world's coming to an end. And so I would wake up and we would talk about it at dinner. We talked about the end times, I say in the book, like a sport. I mean, it was like a football team or something. There was a real energy and excitement that my dad had about it, knowing that we'd be raptured, as he told me, before I was able to have a family or start a career. And it terrified me. You know, it was exciting to him and it terrified me. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. Premillennial dispensationalism is a theological system, a set of beliefs that in popular form, not in academic form that you might learn from a professor who teaches at a seminary, but in popular form looks something like the Left Behind series, the famous novel series, or it's also known for publishing things like a rapture index, like how close are we to the rapture based on world events. And it's kind of obsessed with this idea that Jesus is going to return in the rapture, take away Christians, and then the rest of the world is going to go through this tribulation before Jesus comes back and sets his millennial kingdom up here on earth. And it sounds like your dad had an obsession with that. I mean, it even seems like a guy who loved Jesus and loved his family, but who instilled fear in you, even if unintentionally. Yeah, that's right. I think that there was a sense of belonging he may have found. I mean, there were a lot of other people. My husband remembers when his father, my father-in-law now in Baltimore, told him that the world would end before he could have a family. And he was in the backseat of his car and laid down and was like weeping. I mean, many people in my world have these 
memories of when they were told the world would end, you know? And so some of it, looking back, Keith is a very kitschy, like, you know, the left behind books, the thief in the night, Christian scare movies that were ubiquitously shown at youth groups and in church basements around the country in those years. I mean, some of it is kind of silly, but when you're coming up and being formed, there's such a kind of deep fear or unsettledness that you kind of carry with you. And so what happened in my case is that for a long time, I was afraid, but there was also this sense of excitement my dad carried that I really kind of brought on with me as well, even through high school. I mean, I have a vivid memory of sitting at this ice cream shop with my friend. We were sitting in the back booth. She ordered a banana split and I can literally still see her mouth drop open with like a spoon in midair when I talked about the seven-year tribulation period. And I went through the whole spiel. And when I got to Gog and Magog, she looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and so something that I kind of believed and carried, but there were so many negative implications. For example, Earth Day was always sort of suspicious. If the world was going to burn, why would we take care of it? There were a lot of negative consequences. And it was such a dialogue that was so focused on our family and making sure we were okay. And then kind of talking to others in our life to make sure that they knew to not take the mark of the beast. I mean, it was really a powerful experience coming up in. And so it was not until late in high school when I began to find this Christian counterculture and see other people into art and poetry and started reading literature. It wasn't until maybe junior or senior year and then into college when I began to really let go of some of these beliefs. Well, that's where I was going to go is when did you kind of start moving away and letting go? Because in the book, you tell a story about, I think you were in your early 20s and you're in San Francisco wearing a sandwich board or something like that, holding up posters (laughs) for Jews for Jesus. And I thought, okay, like I'm out. There's no possible way I'm doing that. So, so I just, I thought, man, you really went down this road hard for a long time. Was there never in a sense when you go, okay, my dad's a little quirky, love him to death, but this is a little weird. I wasn't wearing the sandwich board. Others may have been, I was just wearing the juice for Jesus t-shirt and, you know, messianic Judaism, it's kind of a different thread, but my dad was the black sheep of his family, as he famously says all the time to everybody he meets, like a lot of my Jewish family moved to the coast. They're very intellectual, lovely, creative people. My dad was always a little quirky, stayed in Indiana. And then when he became a Christian, like people in our evangelical church love, love my dad. He's the most popular guy because there's a real fascination with Messianic Judaism, modified Seder dinners. Dad started speaking for Jews for Jesus and doing presentations like Chris in the Passover. So he found a lot of meaning and purpose in that work. But he also, I think, really enjoyed kind of finally being kind of this person that people wanted to know about and understand, you know, like Holy Land tours and stuff. So there's nothing wrong with that. Like I have never been to Israel. I'd love to go. I love that my dad found meaning and purpose in that work, but I kind of got carried along with it a little bit too, I think in my early twenties. And the truth is I was doing that work in San Francisco for the summer, but then at night I would go to cafes or walk around the city and write. So I was kind of like, I had one foot kind of in both. Oh, it makes sense. Like in this kind of cool San Francisco side life. And then also had this internship. Well, I mean, we'll all do whatever we have to do, I guess, to live in a cool big city when we're in our twenties. And if that's where a Jews for Jesus shirt and (laughs) proselytize on the sidewalk, then that's paying the bills. It is what it is. So let's talk about this theology, this left behind theology is what I'm going to call it and how it affects us in our faith. And I'm curious as 
to how it affected you. You've talked about fear and maybe you want to expand on that more or maybe there's some other things. But there's a story I have of a good friend of mine who went to seminary in Dallas at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is in its history, it's not, I wouldn't say it is where it is now, but in its history was a big proponent of premillennial dispensationalism. And one of his professors asked his class, he said, hey, do you realize that there are a lot of professors who work second jobs here? And the students were like, well, of course we've noticed it. We've been talking about it. You know, do seminary professor jobs just not pay enough to pay the bills that you have to have all these second jobs, both inside and outside the church? And the professor said, well, here's the deal. When we were younger, we were told that Christ was coming back. And so we didn't need to save for retirement. Well, it turns out now that we're all approaching retirement, we've got to make up for lost time because we were just confident that Jesus was returning so we were, you know, what we would probably say were irresponsible and planning for the future. Are there ways that you've seen that this kind of thinking has affected you as a person or the church in general? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ways that it has impacted life choices that I've made. I think that by the time I was finished with school and out on my own, I'd kind of embraced some different kind of reading of Revelation that is certainly more symbolic and prophetic and interesting and weird and beautiful, but not literal, as my dad would say. But I think that besides the environment, there's just this general pessimistic view when you think that it's getting worse and not better. The truth is, of course, there's always been wars and floods and earthquakes, but you know, my dad, even today, like if you look on his phone, you'll look at like some kind of rapture website and then it'll predict some kind of earthquake and maybe we're a little bit closer, you know? And so I think that the interesting thing, I think even if you're not an end times kid like I was, and if you didn't grow up in it, is just thinking about this dynamic of exceptionalism of how, if you think you know how it's going to go down, there's a certain power differential or dynamic that emerges. And I think that there is a real through line to that posture, to conspiracy theories, militant Christian nationalism today, to a lot of what we see in the Trump era. Maybe they mean some of the people at the Capitol were not necessarily rapture kids or aren't premillennial dispensationalists today, but certainly that line of thinking, that posture is very familiar to me and I continue to see. Now, personally, my dad has not gone down a conspiracy theory road, but I know a lot of people that have lost people that they love to really, really sad and sort of wild conspiracy theories. So I understand a little bit of that framework, I think, even if I don't have that personal experience with my family. Mm-hmm. I like when you said earlier that the pessimism of the world is going downhill until the Christians are taken out and then the tribulation comes. It kind of saps your motivation to kind of work on a more just world, right? I mean, if it's all going to hell in a handbasket, then why does it matter what we do here? And if Christians are all going to be taken away, then why should we work for a better world for people that live here now? And so I think you're right. Your theology really matters. So the second part that you kind of take on is the culture war and politics. How do you define culture war? Like, how should we think about it? Frame that for us a little bit. And how do you think it harms faith? The first thing that I would say about culture war is it is something that takes our gaze off of the upside down kingdom. You know, it is a divisive, charged issue, usually a political issue, sometimes an issue that seems silly, like backtracking on records in the 80s and the parent resource advisory council, Tipper Gore led that 
gets people in a frenzy. But I think it is issues or hot topics that turn our gaze away from moving towards Jesus as Christians, but instead brings us towards division and confusion. And so when I think about culture wars in my own life, that's certainly as a kid hovered around a few issues. And the top of the list, of course, is abortion. And that means that when I turned 18, my dad took me to the Allen County Republican headquarters in downtown Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was registered as a card-carrying Republican on my birthday. And Keith, I had a literal card that I put in my wallet. And then we went next door and had chili dogs, you know, because it was a rite of passage. There was a celebration and an expectation that I am of voting age, that I will do my part because Christians are opposed to abortion. And that's all it was, you know, and so that was really the most intense and clear example in my life of culture wars really hitting home. And I think that's very ubiquitous within evangelicalism and kids that came up in the 80s and 90s like me. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. You know that Keith and I both care deeply about the intersection of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, and culture and politics. What you might not realize is that we have a far deeper passion for God's word. Before we started Truth Over Tribe, we had a different podcast that we are still running called 10-Minute Bible Talks. And if you're trying to find a way to get consistent time with God throughout the week in his word, I want to encourage you to go check out that podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talks. We do little 10-minute podcast devotionals chapter by chapter through the Bible. And just like this podcast, I think you'll find it interesting and thought-provoking and challenging in all the right ways. But above all else, you'll find that you are pointed to Jesus, to love him more in your heart, to follow him with your hands in your life, and to see how the gospel of the kingdom truly transforms everything. So pause the episode and get onto your favorite podcast app and search for 10-minute Bible Talks and start that journey today. When I think of culture war, I think of how it puts people in different tribes, and therefore you are more interested in protecting your own tribe than you are engaging, learning, working together, collaborating. And you know the obvious example of how it shapes our thinking is Christians thought character mattered a lot when Bill Clinton was in office, and I think we would all say now acted completely inappropriately he would have been maybe the first target of the Me Too movement. Somehow he got a pass on that. People you know, on his side of the aisle didn't care about his indiscretions because they wanted power, and he had the power. But the Christians, though, they were very upset. Christian leaders, and I don't say every Christian, but Christian leaders were very upset with him. Character matters. You're influencing our kids. But then, you know, years later, now— Trump had character issues that were not completely dissimilar to Clinton's. The Christians back then were kind of supporting Trump and saying, well, we're not electing a pastor. And the people who gave Clinton a pass were attacking Trump. You know, it's just crazy (laughs) to me. You know, neither side I thought were consistent in how they handled that. Do you agree? 
I 100% agree. Absolutely. You know, and I think that Trump was focused on winning when Jesus lost, right? I mean, laying down your life, losing it to find it does not square with what we saw in Trump's election. And that does not square with what we have seen across the aisle. So I certainly think that we live in a 350 million person democracy, right? Where having two primary parties means that it's going to be hard to find any candidate to be enthusiastic about, but to kind of be so clearly hypocritical in in motive and kind of show how power certainly, quote unquote, Trump's doing any kind of good work of service to move our country forward is definitely clear to me on both sides of the aisle. And it's interesting writing about Christian nationalism, writing about Trump or talking about that presidency. I think that it's really easy then to want to bucket a Christian, a person like me that identifies as a Christian in a certain area, that must mean that I have certain political and social beliefs that must mean that I always vote for Dems. Or, I mean, I'm saying I as like anyone that talks critically about Trump, but that is certainly an assumption when really I think our call is to be critical of both parties, to hold both parties to account and to be careful that we're not assuming anything about how someone votes because of their criticism for Donald John Trump, who is very easy to criticize, in my opinion, for very good reasons. Okay, so that's perfect, because here's kind of what I want to talk about next is that I didn't vote for Trump and I haven't voted for him in either election. The first election against him and Hillary Clinton, I just didn't vote for president. And the second one, my boys, I have adult children, we voted for Kanye Partly as a joke, but partly because he had that Jesus is King out at the time. And now since then, Kanye has done some incredibly dumb things. So I'm not so proud of that vote anymore, but just being honest with you. But what I said at the time of both elections was that I could understand and respect a Christian who said, I held my nose and voted for either Clinton or Trump or Biden, what I didn't quite understand, it's not like I disrespected him, it's just I didn't quite get the Christian who was enthusiastically supporting either of those three candidates. But in the book, you talk about how I think, at least I took it this way, maybe I shouldn't have, that you were pretty enthusiastically in on Biden. You talk about having balloons in your house and they were all kind of ready to drop. And then you had to wait a little bit because of all the mess around the post-election stuff. And then finally they were able to drop. So help me understand how your enthusiastic support for Biden, but you were just saying a second ago, gosh, I think we should stand kind of as a prophetic voice against all political parties. I can't reconcile those. Help me. My husband and I are incredibly enthusiastic about not Trump. And so the balloon drop and the intensity of the last election and not knowing the outcome was that we very much felt like Trump had co-opted the Christian message, holding a Bible up in a protest zone, thinking about what happened in the insurrection, seeing Jesus saves banners at the insurrection and crosses being held up, seeing how the true and upside down kingdom revolutionary message of Jesus, where the last shall be first, had been, I think, co-opted clearly again and again by Trump. We couldn't stand for it. And a lot of us can't stand for it. And so the enthusiasm was about him not being in office. That's what that was and continues to be. You know, and then if I think about going back to pro-life stuff for a minute, if I do think about policies about immigrants, refugees, if I think about who to vote for, I make a pro-con list. 
I don't think either option is perfect. And thinking ahead to the election next year, phew, that's going to be a tough one, isn't it? But I still think personally, it's important to vote. Like for me, it's not an option to opt out. And I think that that just means that we make the best of a not perfect choice, because I think that it's not just what's important to me and a candidate, but how we successfully run a pluralistic country well, you know? And so I just try to think about that in a two-party system. And then I'd also say, we've begun to think about, are there ways to advocate early or often for the kind of candidates we think would do a better job? Not a perfect job, but a better job. And so that's another kind of curiosity I have looking ahead. So it makes sense to me that the balloons and the celebratory nature of your home was more of who was leaving office than who was coming into office, right? I mean, you were just excited that there was going to be a new president, regardless in some sense of who it was. Yeah, that's right. The damage that was done, I think, to American evangelicalism in the Trump years and continues, we were looking for some relief. And certainly whoever is in office, (laughs) I'm not naive enough to believe that somehow changes or lifts. But in terms of headlines or news grabs, I think that that shifts. You write in the book about Christian nationalism, and we don't need to unpack that here, but I want to let people know that I think you do a good job with it. But one of the questions that I had when I was reading it is whether you think Christians should be engaged in government and in politics, or if Christians should kind of maybe have, you know, a bit of healthy distance between them and political power. And what I always kind of go to in this moment is the civil rights movement. So if you're in the 60s and you are hearing all the civil rights discourse between Dr. King and everybody else, would you have engaged in that? I mean, I think most Christians would go, yeah, I would have been out there, or at least I hope I would have been out there, you know, protesting or marching or doing whatever it took to have African-Americans be given the right to vote and Fair Housing Act, all that stuff. But would I come back to you then, I go, is that the culture war? Do I take my issues and say that they're not the culture war, they're working for justice, but those people over there and their issues, well, that's the culture war. And why is that the culture war? Because I don't agree with them or they're not my priorities or what have you. So how do Christians navigate this idea that we're to work for justice, but we don't want to get sucked up in government power? Because it's an honest question. I don't have any answer, by the way. So if you don't have any answer, you'll just join me in not having any answer. It's just that it's hard because in order to enact justice, however you want to define that, you've got to have political power. But as soon as you get political power, there's a temptation there to let it corrupt you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it's always easy in hindsight to look back and say, oh, if I was in the civil rights movement in the 60s, this is what I would have done. It's harder to in our present moment, understand what that would be. I mean, I think about how Jesus interacted with political power and what we see about how I think Jesus held political power into account and was suspicious of, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders and religious sects. I think that um, there is a way to have a healthy suspicion and accountability, but also to understand that if we live under a certain power structure, it means that we have an invitation to work for human flourishing I think not just in the church, but also as citizens in America or wherever we happen to live. So I think we have to figure out a way to engage in it that has some kind of healthy kind of Jesuit indifference or healthy kind of criticism or to hold ourselves and each other into account while still coming together with our neighbors that maybe don't believe what we do. 
it's hard. At least I find it hard to work for human flourishing, which we would you know, call justice or whatever we want to call it. And at the same time, not get sucked up into that power and let it change you. You know, everybody says they're going to go to Washington to change Washington, but Washington almost always ends up changing them. I mean, it's not dissimilar from what the story you shared at the beginning. You went to Seattle to, you know, change Seattle. That's oversimplifying it. But you said, you know, Seattle has a way, or big cities have a way of changing you more than you change them. So let's stay on this. You talk about human flourishing. And so there's a line in your book, and I hope I got it exactly right when I was writing it down. It says, we can bear witness when we work for racial justice, equal pay, universal preschool, and clean water. Now, when I hear that, what I hear is, oh, well, what Sarah's doing is just kind of adopting the Democratic platform. She's critical of Christians who adopt the Republican platform, but it sounds like she's just doing the same thing. And what I get afraid of is I think that the people who are more progressive Christians have really good points that people on the conservative side of Christianity sold out their faith for political power. I think it's a really good point. I think all conservative Christians need to hear that. I just wonder if the same thing doesn't happen on the other side. And it's not really a right-left issue. It's just a issue all Christians struggle with. I think that progressive Christians or progressive folks or folks on the left are just as much in danger of political tribalism as folks that may identify as conservative or compassionate conservatives. And I think that's because where we live makes a difference. I mean, I live in Seattle. And so seeing how there can be a limited sense of compassion for folks on the other side of the aisle is a pretty common lived experience. I mean, it's easy here to vilify folks that are conservatives or Republicans or to write them off. And at best, we may be sort of mildly suspicious or keep an arm's length, or at worst, a Seattleite may really vilify someone that identifies as a Republican. And, you know, honestly, if you go outside of the city for half an hour, you'll see Trump signs. Like, it is certainly a progressive bubble. But I think that Folks have actual, real, thoughtful reasons for their political beliefs and preferences. There is a real call to look at a person first, to think about the human story behind why we believe what we do. And I think that there is a meaningful and consistent reason why we're all doing our best trying to vote for politics and policies that not just matter to us, but also will help, again, bring justice. And there's different thoughts and opinions on why. And so I think that Interestingly, growing up in the Midwest, where it was certainly uncommon for people around me to identify as progressive politically, and now living here where it's very much the opposite, I've really seen both sides. And I think that I've tried to develop compassion and a healthy criticism either way. You mentioned earlier that your dad was very pro-life and that your whole Christian community there in Indiana was pro-life. It sounds like you would consider yourself still pro-life, but you've kind of redefined the term or expanded the term. Can you tell us what you mean when you say that you are pro-life? Yeah. I mean, I would just say that I'm pro all of life. I mean, I think that the term, by the way, pro-life, anti-choice, I mean, I think that we all hear how those terms have been politicized, but I clearly and plainly believe in the sanctity of all of life, of people that are not born, of people that are living and need care of the immigrant, of the refugee, of the oppressed. I just mean I am pro 
human flourishing. And I vote for or try to find candidates that best and most consistently want to bring that work forward. And I do that with my eyes open. Like you said, what is it? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? I mean, (laughs) it's a broken system. It's a lot easier to disengage. It's a lot easier to think my vote doesn't matter. But just like we vote with our dollars, we like vote at the ballot box. And so I do believe that we have a responsibility to try to make the best choices we have that are pro all of human flourishing. So let me pin you down a little bit on abortion. You said that in your past, you were protesting that I think this is high school or something. You tell a story about protesting at an abortion clinic. Is that right? High school? One morning in high school to Planned Parenthood. That's right. Yeah. And I think you said that you didn't know any people who were helping single moms. In other words, you knew these pro-life people who are protesting or voting Republican in order to enforce kind of a pro-life agenda on abortion. But you didn't really know people who were engaged in helping people who had children maybe in difficult circumstances. And and when I heard that, it's so contrary to my experience, you know, in the world that I live in, in our church, in our community, it's the Christians who are on the front of helping immigrants, but it's also of fostering, you know, foster children and adoption and helping single moms. So I just want to say, when you go back and think about that, do you think that in order to be pro-life, specifically in the area of abortion, that a Christian has to also be engaged in all these other activities, helping immigrants and helping single moms, or they're maybe being hypocritical? Yeah, I don't think that Christians have to do any of that to have a political belief. I don't think that we have to demonstrate that in life, but I think that the Spirit convicts us to serve other people. I mean, that's just showing up, you know, in practical ways. But yeah, like in high school in the 90s in Indiana, I went to a Lutheran high school, and one morning we all got together went to Planned Parenthood and just held up signs and prayed for the women that were going in, you know? But it is hard for me to imagine a woman walking into the clinic that morning, seeing a group of people holding signs and thinking, oh, I'm going to change my mind. I mean, it's kind of like my Jews for Jesus era in, (laughs) what is it, 97, when I was handing out tracts. That's not the best way to love and serve other people, I would argue. But it was also personal for my family. My mom got pregnant as a teenager, volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center when I was in high school. And every year we would get this card I talk about in the book. We get this card with the names of the babies that were saved that were not aborted, but were adopted at the center, which is beautiful, right? That's lovely. But we would throw the card in the trash every year with the other cards. Like I never once as a kid thought, I wonder what's happening next to those babies or if they've you know, found good services or support. Like, I just thought there was a magic kind of government agency that would drop down like a supply kit to make sure people had what they needed to get off. And I just had no real concept of it. And so I think that your experience with church now, like, it's so good. Like, I do think there is beautiful work being done with fostering and adoption. I mean, in my own church as well, we work with a nonprofit doing that work here in Seattle. So I think that I have a lot of hope and optimism that we're all changing. But back when I was coming up, at least where I was living, that was certainly not my experience. So I actually think things are getting better in that way. I love the image of the stork brings the baby and the stork also brings the supply kit of everything you need to raise that baby. (laughs) Somehow I missed out on that one. (laughs) But I would love it if that were the case. Do you know conservative, politically and theologically, conservative people who you respect, that work for justice, that 
work for human flourishing, that live in the upside down kingdom, that, you know, love their neighbor. Do you have friendships with people outside of kind of the more, what I'm taking to be a more progressive theological and political beliefs or not really? Are you in a little bit in the Seattle bubble yourself? Yeah. Well, I would say that my beliefs are probably more politically progressive on the kind of Christian spectrum. But I think that in terms of orthodoxy, historic Christian faith creeds, I mean, that's all certainly a center part of my life, just to to say that. Yeah. And then Good. I do know people like that, but they're not here. Mm. I think about friends and family in the Midwest, specifically people living in Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. I think about folks in those parts of the country, the part where I came from, that are certainly doing that. But it is less common. It is less common here, for better or for worse or whatever. That's just just my honest answer. So I do make relationships, which is not really locally right now. Although maybe there's someone in Spokane. I don't know. There could be somebody on the east side of the country. (laughs) It's like a different world over there in Spokane, isn't it? It's like a whole new world. (laughs) I wonder how much Trump's election and presidency, and even continuing now, it seems like he's the front runner for the Republican nomination, at least as of the time we have this conversation. I wonder how much that affected how we interpret our faith and relationships, family. I mean, it's such a decisive event in our history and in our personal lives. It seems like if Trump had never been president, if you'd have lost to Hillary Clinton or maybe never even run for presidency, like, would you have written this book? Or do you think, no, that is really what exposed, brought out, however you want to say it, kind of the kind of Christianity that you want to offer an alternative to? Mm, That's such a cool question. I mean, I think about a few things. Like, even if Trump had never run and it didn't happen and it doesn't happen again or whatever, we certainly have seen the church divided over politics with COVID, with vaccines, with the masks, with masks or not masks in the service, right? We've seen what happened after the murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. And certainly we've seen the fall of many celebrity pastors or famous pastors that have kind of fallen from grace from various forms of abuse or mismanagement. And so there would certainly be plenty of fodder because we're people and we're trying to do our best and we're messing up all the time. And so I think that something about Trump and the Trump presidency was kind of like turning the flywheel faster, kind of like bringing up a little bit more of some of the brokenness. You know, I think that I like to idealize the 90s and the 80s, even though I see a lot of issues with how I was raised and how I was not formed. My spiritual formation was very much an American formation. I was formed by the mall on Saturday and church on Sunday. Like I see that looking back, I think a lot of these problems persisted, but we didn't talk about them. And so I don't know. I think there's this temptation for nostalgia or to want things to be how they were. But the truth is there's something really liberating and freeing when we bring what's wrong to light. And sometimes people will say, why talk about this stuff at all? Aren't you shining a light on what's wrong? But I am more convicted than ever that when we talk about and surface what's wrong, we do that because we love the church. The church is what Jesus left us with. If we're Christians, we believe in the flourishing of the church. And if we have hearts burning for change, then surfacing what is wrong, I think, is a way to move towards things being made right, all things being made new. And I think that for me, I only feel, ironically, more of a sense of optimism and hope about where we're going, regardless of who wins the election next year. And that's been a pretty big surprise, honestly. I love that you said that because 
I do think there's a group of Christians out there who wish that people like you or even me wouldn't critique the church and just let's be quiet. Let's just hide those things away. Let's don't draw attention to it. But I think that's how sin festers and grows. And I think it's healthy when we can lovingly and graciously do some self-examination and call ourselves. And we have to put ourselves into it too. We can't just look at those Trump supporters or those Biden Christians or, you know, we have to put ourselves in there. But when we can critique, lovingly critique the church, speak the truth in love, as Paul would say, I think it is a witness to those outside the church that there's something real here and genuine and we can repent from our sin and it maybe even is attractive to them. In the book, you talk about your dad. He had cancer. And so is he still alive? How is he doing? Can you just give me an update on that? Thanks for asking. Yeah, my dad has myeloma, so it's a treatable but not curable kind of bone cancer. He was diagnosed at the start of the pandemic and is doing well. He just had a bone marrow biopsy, just so we're going to see about his staging, but he's continuing to do okay. He'll be in chemo every Tuesday for the rest of his life, but he is continuing to maintain his numbers. So the cool thing that happened is I had a book launch for orphaned believers in January And I didn't know if he'd be able to attend and he was there and it was just a really, really cool moment. I brought him up and read part of the book, the sad confetti chapter that I write about going to the ocean with him and people cheered. It was just a really sweet moment. And actually, interestingly, the book has been a very healing and kind of really positive part of our relationship. I feel closer to him than I ever have. And he read it out loud with my mom. We would talk through parts of it. He just said that he didn't understand or know the impact that some of the end times theology he raised me with had. I mean, it's been a really cool and wonderful grace to see how dad and I have interacted over it. And so I'm just so happy to be able to say that. So thanks for asking. Well, I want to say that I think that however people interact with your book and where they come out on different issues, I think everybody who reads this will say that you have been a very faithful daughter to your dad and that he's just oh, very fortunate you. to have you. I think that in the midst of all the controversy and all the things that you maybe, you know, wish had gone differently, you are gracious and kind to him. And I think it's really what makes your book, Orphan Believers, excellent, is that it's not just a diatribe. It's not a political thing. It's a story, your story, but also the story of a family. And I think it just makes it a remarkable book. Where can we find you? Are you on social media? Where do you put out stuff? Yeah, totally. Yep. I mostly hang out on Instagram at sarah.billups. And then I have a Substack newsletter called Bitter Scroll that I send out to. Sarah, would you mind closing just by praying for the church, you know, in America that we would follow Jesus and love our neighbor and whatever else is on your heart? Yeah, I would love to. Oh, uh, Jesus, thank you for bringing us together for this conversation. I pray that you would be with and meet each person listening where they are wherever they are in the country or in the world, whatever they believe, if they're in a place of flourishing and of joy and of closeness to you, of consolation, or if they're in a season of grief or loss or confusion or alienation, thank you for knowing each of us and caring about us. And thank you for caring about our world. We pray that you would, as we read in um, Psalm 18, bring us into a spacious place um, because you rescued us, because you delighted in us. And we, we give you nothing but gratitude and thanks, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.